Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing. The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. When you're craving church's three-piece classic, there's no other option. Two crispy legs, a thigh, and a warm honey butter biscuit are the only way. And that's why we call it a classic. Church's Texas Chicken. Tap the banner to find your nearest location. Offer valid at participating locations. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcast. It's episode two in our third series of our top ten lists, these special podcasts we're making for our third series, which, let's be frank, is a labour of love for our chief editor, Kevin Turner, our first guest back on the podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you very good much. Yeah, no, it's good. Yeah, looking forward to this. What's the yeah. topic this week? This week, it is the top ten F1 drivers not to win the World Championship. Not to win a world championship. We've got some good win. drivers to get through today. So yeah, so I think there have been thirty-four world champions, uh, but I wouldn't say that they're the top thirty-four greatest F1 drivers. So I think there's some overlap between the back end of that list and the top end of this list. Let's get the opinion of our other two guests. Welcome back to the podcast, uh, motorsport journalist Damien Smith. Good to have you back. Thank you. Nice to be back. Thank you. You two have just had a lovely pub lunch. Out of ten, how would you rate that one? 
I would say an eight or nine, I think. That's yeah, good. I was, I was going to go for eight. I That's think. a high rating. Probably, yeah, probably eight, yeah. With another former colleague. Yeah, we know. like collecting former <laughs> colleagues. I'm just hoping to hang around for long enough so that I guess everyone becomes a former colleague and I'm still here in a little shed. I'm not envious at all after my uh, Tesco meal deal. Now, although I forgot my club card, so I paid full price for it. Well, the extra 50p. <laughs> Somebody say something witty now, please. <laughs> and our third guest on the podcast today, Autosport.com's editor, Hayden Cobb. Welcome to uh, Kev's Top 10 Podcast. Is it the first one you've done or not? Thank you. Yeah, that's right. It's my, my debut. So I Is hope, it? Uh, hope From I the live previ- up to expectations. The previous two series have never dragged you in. No, unfortunately uh. not. But there you go. So hopefully I can press. Do you want to know about my lunch? or is it what, we know we're gonna Did you go, go meal deal? I know. I went quite posh. I went itsu. Oh, come on. It was, it was very nice. What's wrong with you people? Well, that's really? probably the most posh one then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost posh. We had sort of pub Burg- Burger and chips. And yeah. Yeah. Tesco yeah. meal deal. Yeah, but £3.90, not £3.40. Because I left my key ring in the car. So I was going to go back and get it for that 50p saving. But it's parked 10 minutes away. I mean, at this rate, I'm going to go back to the pub now. <laughs> Best thing about my lunch is that Kev bought it. So Did he? Yeah, he did. He had it in his pocket. He did. He's yeah. a generous man. In fact, he invited you in on the premise of having lunch and then we roped you into podcasts. That may have been the case. That's exactly what happened. Yes, yeah. Good payment scheme. I like yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. It is good. Uh, right, let's get into our top 10. F1 drivers never to win a world championship. Kev, kick us off. Who's at 10? What are the stats? So, number 10, Felipe Massa, 2002 and 2004 to 17, 269 starts, 11 wins, 16 poles. Best result second in 2008, of course. So, Bear with me. I know that Massa, obviously, he hung around a bit too long. He got absolutely pasted uh, by well, all of his teammates, really, uh, after he had the unfortunate incident at Hungary. Um, but actually, if you look at what he did, I'd say 2007 to that first part of 2009, really Megan, in particular 2008, you know, he came within, what, 10, 15 seconds of being world champion. He's probably closer to winning the world championship than anyone else on this list because of that. And remember, he wasn't very good in the wet, and that was a wet day. He was in front of his home crowd, massive pressure of the championship. And he did, I think it was absolutely fantastic performance, surely the race of his life. Uh, and it was just, you know, what was going on behind that in the end meant that he lost the championship by by a point. And he really was, you know, stunning that season. You know, he beat Raikkonen 6-2 on wins, 6-2 on poles, you know, his teammate, world champion teammate. And let's not forget there were points that he lost through no fault of his own. Obviously, he was mega in Hungary, had the engine blow up, um, you know, they lost in that one. There was the whole, <laughs> another podcast, Singapore 2008, which, you know, he was, you know, he was on course for a good result there. So, um, as much as obviously history goes, well, of course, Lewis Hamilton, you know, another world championship. But actually, that particular year, you know, Massa was was fantastic, and I think that that's what edges him onto the onto the list for me. He's a good example of a very respectable, decent Grand Prix driver who had one real shot at the world title and actually stepped up and actually took his opportunity. It wasn't his fault that it didn't work out, as you say. So um, I've got a lot of respect for him for that. Yeah, he's just—he would have been an—it'd been odd to think of him as a world champion now. I don't know how would he be perceived as a world champion had it gone his way that day. Well, you described it as a sliding doors moment on the previous podcast because who knows how that changes the trajectory of a career? Yeah, that's true. You know, when you become world champion and you know you get that extra aura around you. Yeah, I think for our younger listeners to this, and I'll include myself in that, is <laughs> oh, all right. Who's Thanks. the youngest person in the room? It's got to be a that. representation thing. But um, no, I only mentioned that because when we get onto the rest of this list, this is probably your sort of most recent one. And even then, I think for some people's memories, as you've just alluded to there, 
the sort of second half of Massa's career is probably what maybe what people will remember. But that that yeah, that Ferrari era pre-accident and 2008 season, of course, being the sort of the pinnacle of it. Yeah, he was incredible. Look at who he was up against in terms of teammate, in terms of competition, and in who won the title that year in Hamilton. Like it, there was so much sort of stacked against him in terms of quality that you think you just take out a couple of things there. And like we said, luck, which I'm sure we'll come on to, and like where things can just go wrong or right. Oh yeah, another day he becomes a world champion, and the rest is history. And I think uh, I think the point about him doing everything he could is what edges him ahead. Of I mean, I guess the other two people that you come into this for the tenth spot be Juan Pablo Montoya and Carlos Reutemann. And for me, they both contributed more to their own not winning mm, the championship, yeah, yeah. if you like, than Massa did in two thousand and eight. You know, uh, I mean, we've talked about before about Reutemann's capitulation at the finale in nineteen eighty one. Montoya obviously made mistakes. When he was at Williams, he had some great moments, but he wasn't he wasn't a polished performer. Whereas I think Massa really was, you know, in two thousand. Okay, I know there's a British Grand Prix where he was facing the wrong way as often as he was facing the right way, but actually most of that. Yeah, but Hamilton had his moments that year, you know, driving into Raikkonen in the pit lane in Canada. Um, you know, everyone pretty much had a moment that you could make a case for Robert Kubica being the best driver of two thousand and eight. Um, but yeah, I think I think Massa, yeah, he really did do a good job there. And it, we'll it would have been interesting to see him up against Alonso had he not had the coil spring from Rubens Barrichello hit him in the head in two thousand and nine. If he if he hadn't had that accident, which I'm sure, I don't know what you guys think. I think that affected him. Certainly, he the way in, you just look at it on paper results and the trajectory of where he was granted Ferrari itself was was sort of on a dip as at the same time almost. But yeah, you compare him to his teammate at the time and then where he went pre- after that, yeah, it did seem like there was that that decline. And yeah, it'd be fascinating to see years on now he's retired, would he would he sort of ever to allude to that or speak? I don't think he's really spoken about it too much in terms of retrospect. No, I don't remember him doing so. I think at the time he sort of didn't, but when it was still in his yes, career, second yes. career, I feel like he was denying that it was a, a thing, whereas now... Okay, It'd be really interesting Felipe, if we yeah. get him sometime. To I, I, I mean, mm. I'm an enormous Alonso fan, so I suspect that Alonso would still have had him covered. I think but he would, yeah. Maybe by a smaller margin. Mm. Yeah. And then you could say, perhaps, in terms of title fights, as for Ferrari as a team, much stronger, because obviously since that era, or just before it, Ferrari have won nothing since. So maybe if there was a yeah, stronger massa, then, then who knows. But either way, I think he definitely justified a place on this list compared to a few of the others who've just just missed out. Perhaps one of the most experienced drivers on the list. Would you? Well, we won't, we won't get into giving away anything, but uh, certainly a very, very experienced Formula 1 starter. Yeah, I'm just looking at yeah. the list there. I reckon he's got more starts than anyone else in the 10, yeah. yeah. I mean, okay. 269 yeah. is right up there, isn't it? I'd, We've got a few yeah. into the 300 club now. And, of course, Sebastian Vettel on 299, yeah. presumably waiting for his one-off Japanese Grand Prix appearance in 2024 or whatever, where he can make it 300. He'll get a call-up. <laughs> yeah that, that, who with that's that the <laughs> what, right. I, what I did like about Massa was he came from um, the left field didn't he because the Euro 3000 title is the one he won which was you know the second division 3000 title it wasn't, it wasn't the Premier League no one really knew much about him and he came in and he just sort of was part of the furniture at Sauber he just seemed to make sense there yeah and, uh, very you know, much fought himself up towards that. didn't land in that yeah that plum seat straight away exactly yeah. the same sort of say found myself and just fought and fought and showed his results and, and worked his way up. So, yeah. 
Yeah, he deserves he deserves more respect, probably from me as much as anyone. To be honest, I don't give him enough respect. I'd say he's good. Yeah. Okay, yeah. well let's move on from someone who had their chance and then stayed in Formula One for uh, a while longer, but could never replicate it. To another to an, a driver now who who built up to his uh, his best moment. Uh, Kev, who's at number nine? So number nine is Didier Peroni, much maligned in the British press for his. Uh, apparent duplicity at the 1982 San Marino Grand Prix. Another driver whose best years were taken as a result of a, an accident at uh, Hockenheim uh, that same season. So, yeah, 70 starts, three wins, four poles, and his best championship result was 1982, which obviously was a crazy season. It was probably the most ridiculous season in F1 history. Um, but, of course, he, given that he didn't take part in any of the races from, well, the back, back third of the season after, you know, because he obviously didn't start the German Grand Prix, um, and he, he still finished second. So he, there's a reasonable chance he'd have been the world champion that year. Um, some people say, oh, as you will know, should have been there winning that championship. But, you know, <laughs> Baroni got the points on the board. Villeneuve hadn't got there, unfortunately, by the time he was killed. Um, but also, he's not in there just for that Ferrari season. He's also in there for his performances at Ligier in 1980. We talked about in Series 2 with Marcus Simmons, how impressive he was. Um, yeah, there was a... But at that time, people there was a suggestion he might be the fastest driver in Formula One. You know, he was very unfortunate not to win three or four races with Ligier in the middle of the season, which would have put him right up there in the sort of Alan Jones Nelson Piquet title fight. So, very good driver. Um, he was, uh, you know, quite an outspoken one as well. He was involved with Nicky Loud at the driver's strike uh, in Kyle Army at the start of '82, and I think he's probably been a bit underrated by history because, uh, you know, because of the the sort of the. Gilles Villeneuve, San Marino situation um, has, has probably hurt him a little bit, but yeah, a very good, a very good driver. And there is a, another side to that story where he's not the villain at all, and that he was, you know, he, he didn't all he, all he was doing was was racing and, and and wasn't being duplicitous. So other people claim that uh, that's been overplayed. So you know, but it is, it does seem to be the case that he was he was deeply affected by the loss of Villeneuve in the in the months after. Um, and I think he was quite a troubled man. He was going through a lot of personal life strife as well. He was going through a divorce that summer. His life was in turmoil. And, and then Hockenheim happened. And of course, um, that was the end of a, what would have been, a, I think, a really great career through the 80s. I think he would have been champion in 82 without that, uh, with the way the Ferrari was developing and how, how Postlethwaite was getting on top of that car. I think he'd have been the champion that year. And he'd have had a shot in 83, because the 83 Ferrari was, was pretty good. They didn't maintain a championship challenge, and they split the points between them. But if, you know, They if won the Constructors, didn't they? They, they so, did win the Constructors yeah. Championship. And the, and I think if you'd had a, you know, drivers tend to get better when they win the World Championship. So you can imagine him being a more complete driver. Ferrari were already fans. I mean, they said they would keep a drive, a drive open for him after he, you know, I mean, it never happened. Um, and he was, of course, he hadn't made his return when he was killed in, a, in that powerboat accident. But yeah, I think he was highly rated. Props, Perhaps forgive, forgotten a little bit by history because he's just before that great era where we suddenly got you know Senna, Prost, Mansell, PK all going at it. But he he could have been a world champion once, maybe twice, just before that. I guess maybe just the sentimentality of the the win it all costs that may have cost him a little bit, and that's where errors come in and and various sort of races sort of are lost there. But no, I much very much agree with with you too, unless unless you disagree with that. No, well, I mean, there's an argument that why was he going so quick in that wet? practice session at Hockenheim in the first place yeah why, why was he why was he laying it on the line like that you know and uh, yeah he cartwheeled over the back of Alain Prost's Renault in the spray uh, which also contributed to why Prost was never so keen really in the wet after that because it wasn't the grip it was the not being able to see yeah and if you ever do a list of the sweatiest Grand Prix drivers he was what he was always dripping 
after uh, you see any photos of him when he's got out of the car he used to drip sweat really yeah but, but you know that's the really noticeable thing when you watch old races before Schumacher comes along they all look absolutely shattered yeah. Yeah. they're falling over collapsing sweating they look like they've really been through the mill and then and, did, and then suddenly in the early yeah. 90s these young Germans like jumping out and like jumping all around the pony what let's, the let's hell is going on yeah, yeah, exactly. their bodies weren't quite so much for shrine I would say yeah. no that's fair yeah. and he did seem to have quite a physical style as well which I guess contributed to even more perhaps the sweat but maybe it's just a bit, a bit of show there you know I've shown, well, that, I've shown that I've worked hard and the cars were quite physical yes. as well, well yeah, you can't in, in, that, in the yeah, early yeah. 80s we had those horrendous first ground effects cars with the skirts and ludicrous mm. g-force and all that sort of stuff so yeah I'm not I'm not suggesting for one moment that they had an easy time of it well let's go back a little bit further number eight on your list Kev who is it Jose Fran Gonzalez right. this is the one tweak I made to a previous version of this list because I've swapped him and number seven which is Tony Brooks. So both 1950s drivers. So Gonzalez started 26 races, which doesn't sound very much. I'd barely get you through a season now, but actually in those days, <laughs> took you through much of the decade. Um, those are world championship races, aren't World they? championship races. So yeah, we're not uh, not including non-championship uh, F1 races, of which there were many, and he did win some. Um, but two world championship Grand Prix wins, three poles, and his best result was second in 1954, which is a bit of an odd season when Fangio was jumping in out of cars and Ascari was waiting for Lancia to get their act together and all that sort of thing. Um, Whereas Tony Brooks started 38 times, won six times, three poles, and his best result was was uh, in the championship was 1959. So I think these these are the these are the two standout talents of the 50s that didn't win a, a world championship, frankly. Um, and the reason that Brooks is ahead is that I think yeah he probably did a bit more. Um, he did win more, uh, and he also got closer in 1959. I think he would have been a very worthy champion. Uh, Ferrari was sort of the last bastion. That was the last time a front-engined Grand Prix car could have won the World Championship. Um, but he was a bit unlucky. Um, I think the Spa round was cancelled, so that was a race he would almost certainly have won. Dominated the French Grand Prix. He was brilliant Prix. round Spa, wasn't he? Brilliant round Spa. He'd won the, won the year before. Um, I think he had a car failure at Monza as well, which is another race that the Ferrari probably would have won. Uh, and then he was hit, he's hit by his teammate the season finale, so that's how savvy they were then. Not not in not interrupting other uh, rival drivers, but their own uh, their own team. And he'd vowed after an accident at Le Mans that he would never continue with a car that he wasn't sure about. So he came in and pitted, and and that lost him the the chance to win the championship. But if there's a criticism of Brooks, it's probably that he only showed his best when Moss had retired from a race. But he was quicker than everyone else. So I would say he was probably quicker than Jack Brabham. That could be a bit controversial. Three-time world champ. I think Brooks, in a front-engine car anyway, was quicker. Um, and Gonzalez, of course, has his moment in history as being the first driver to win a World Championship Grand Prix for Ferrari. I don't think he was obviously quite on a par with Fangio, but he's one of those drivers on his day. Mm. He was he was incredible. Um, so I think they both need to be in the list. But I put, I put Brooks ahead of Gonzalez. But I'm interested to know if Damien agrees with me. Oh, definitely. To me, Gonzalez was... Um, was important and great, but only on his day. He wasn't going to be over a season as a, as a world champion for me. Whereas Brooks was a was a um, yeah, as you say, fifty nine. Um, he could so easily have been world champion that year, and it was only. I think it was his only his his sense of um, perspective that stopped him becoming world champion. You know, the fact that he he wanted to survive. You know, it's as simple as that. With with that that example at Sebring. You know, the, the car was was pretty much undamaged, and he he could have carried on, but he he you know he had vowed to himself that he wouldn't take any risks, and um, who can blame him? Yeah, it's interesting you sort of take that phrase on his day because you could probably apply that to a lot of the list, and that's 
potentially why they're here. It's not on his day, it's on, on their bad days too, that they that's why he become champion. But very much so, I think he's almost at the top of that on his day, best driver list. Because yeah, the races when he was on his day on, on the Mustard, like, incredible. Um, and and like you say, yeah, picking his moments being, yeah, in, in an era of, of the mortality rate and everything that was sort of the danger involved. Yeah, picking his moments and not going and going. And that probably what ultimately cost you taking the risk, taking the reward of, of, of a world championship. It's hard to, over 70 plus years, it's hard to compare um, different eras sometimes. Uh, but Hayden, before we came in to uh, record, when these two enjoying their pub lunch, funnily enough, we're saying that's one of the things where, Kev, because you've read like so extensively on, on historic parts of Grand Prix racing. Like it's very hard to argue with the, the older stuff. It's very hard to argue with your like your call on this one. Like are they the wrong wrong way around? Well, you've just got that depth of knowledge. But this is your passion, like, you know, this well, yeah, is what I mean, you I, like to do. So I think I said before, I take the lists very seriously when I'm putting together, but then hopefully it's more fun when we actually discuss it. But yeah. that's also why we get people like mm. Ian Titchmarsh or, or Damien Smith because they've mm. got you know, they've got that knowledge as well. You know, I think we can mention that Damo was editor for Motorsport magazine for a decade. So I'd suggest that I'm not the only one with a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of knowledge in the room. Um, but yeah, I mean, just on the, on the Gonzalez Brooks point as, as well, I think they were both mega number twos, Gonzalez to Alberto Ascari and Brooks to Sterling Moss. But I would say when they then had their time as lead driver, if you like, I think Brooks was more convincing. Um, you know, he really led the Ferrari line. Uh, Gonzalez again, like as Hayden said, he had his moments, but you know, in 1954 he finished a long way behind Fangio in the points. It wasn't really a championship fight. Fangio had it had it done. Mm. Now, Gonzalez did have fairly rubbish Ferraris. To be fair, Brooks probably had a better car. Yeah, but uh, but I think it, I think Brooks edges ahead. Um, Moss is always he was always very adamant that, that Tony was the guy that he respected the most alongside Fangio. And Moss wasn't one to blow smoke, was he? You know, he would say, he would call it as it was. And he had immense respect for him, racing alongside him. And the interesting thing, I was very lucky to have met Tony a number of times. And he was a, he was the gentleman that you always, he was always put forward to be. He was a lovely man. Um, but he knew how good he was. And there was a certain racing driver arrogance underneath that gentleman uh, front. He knew that he was one of the best of the era. The other thing worth mentioning, actually, on the Moss point, is that in those days, Moss had the call on engine and chassis. So if Brooks was going well, wherever, he'd go, oh, I, want, I, want, I want Tony's engine yeah. in my chassis. Or, and Tony or would mine. never complain about that. No, because he'd signed up as a number two. That's but it. actually, when you look at how close they were on pace on some occasions, you think, well, that's with Sterling getting everything he wanted. And Brooks just going, well, I'll, I'll make... He said that... he, I think he actually said once, like, there was no point in me working that hard on getting the car set up and whatever, because there's a good chance that it'd be nicked anyway so I just had to make do with whatever I had so that puts his achievements into even more perspective I think that's interesting and I was going to ask about when you've had the chance to meet these drivers because um, some you can and some you know you've either never met or you couldn't met because it was a dangerous era of, of Formula One so then you are left to go back to the history books to your personal reading to your personal knowledge to try and fit these drivers into the more contemporary lists as as well. But uh, I guess when you've had a chance to, like you say with Tony, have some sit-downs, it makes it a little bit easier because you can pick, you know, you can ask them questions and things. Yeah, exactly. And, and um, he was also very engaged in the modern sport. He was really interested to know what was going on 
in the current affairs and and who was doing what with with Hamilton or Alonso or whoever it was at the time who was who was the story you know he was um he was a real enthusiast and that never left him um but I, there was always this sense that he he knew he knew deep down how good he was and how capable he was and but he had this attitude he was also religious and that was part of it about you know he he be- he believed life was sacred and therefore his life he you know he couldn't just toss it away and he had a family to think about and he was you know he was uh, a well-rounded man and um he was uh, it was a pleasure to meet him it's a difficult yeah. position to be in in 1950 as a 1950s racing driver isn't it uh, believing yeah. that you know <laughs> saying <laughs> like, yeah you know <laughs> nowadays perhaps not so much but in the 50s yeah there was a reasonable chance you'd be mm. i think he probably i think all drivers of that era drove probably with well, most of them, the ones that hung around, drove with a margin. I think yeah. that explains the Fangio. Mm. I've never, I never drove like I did in '57 German Grand Prix. I never will again mm. because that was the I am going to hang it out you in the way to, yeah. they always yeah. do now. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not saying that one is better than the other. It's just, it's, it's just, just different. different. It's a yeah. different yeah. world. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But I think comparatively, you, you can compare them in terms of that year. Um, Tony could should have been world champion and it didn't work out for these reasons and you can compare that to Felipe Massa for example in terms of yeah. you know it was out of his hands yeah. he had the machinery so, he had yeah. the opportunity for yeah. whatever reason didn't happen um, let's move on who's next so number six is Jackie Ix yes 1966-79 starts eight wins 13 poles best result of second in both 69 and 70 which I guess is probably what edges him ahead of, of Brooks because I think on, on ability they're you know within their era it's probably not all that different you know a young ix late later on in his f1 career it all kind of went a bit it went a bit south really um and he and he didn't finish in a in a very good way but i think early early days he's very highly rated you know sensational when he's his f2 outing at the nurburgring uh against the f1 cars when they started them on the same grid um f- one of the great wet weather wins of the french grand prix uh 1968 um and then he was second at with Brabham in 69 to Jackie Stewart and second Ferrari behind the posthumous FC Jochen Rint. Um So, yeah, he kind of nearly got there, but not quite. He was rated actually second in both those years, I believe, by Autocourse. Um, although I'd say, I think I perhaps yeah, would have had him third behind Rint. As, uh, I think that's probably fair. I think JYS and Rint you'd have ahead. Um, but as the third best, probably the third best driver of his era, um, you know, you'd quite often get a world championship out of that, and he he just didn't quite quite get it done. He didn't have enough of a window. No, well, he did do with Brabham. Jack had a big testing shunt at Silverstone, was ruled out for um, most of the summer, I think. And um, Jackie basically picked up the team and kind of carried it through the through the summer. So you know, he had that confidence and that ability and and um, authority, I think, as a as a a driver you know he was um and he had a kind of aura about him didn't he jackie x and he was kind of set apart from everyone else um because on the safety stuff he took a different perspective to stuart they they clashed quite a bit at that time they're friends now but back then there was quite a lot of tension you know he's very much his own man and um uh yeah i think everyone who said they experienced him then he he was he was he had this sort of a bit of an Alonso kind of kind of thing about him where he was he was sort of set apart. Shall we take the next driver at number five and discuss them a little bit overlapping because their careers overlapped, the stats overlap a little bit. What do you think? Or do you want to just take Jackie X on his own? 
No, we can do. We can go on to five as well. Yeah, um, I hadn't thought of that as a combination to compare. Actually, I almost swapped five and four around. Oh, so it's okay. oh, that's exciting. <laughs> uh, so yeah, five is Ronnie Peterson. One hundred twenty-three starts, so very similar to X. Ten wins, fourteen poles, so slightly ahead on both. And he was second in the championship at either end of his career. Really, nineteen seventy-one in the March seven eleven with a ridiculous tea tray front wing. Didn't win a race. Yeah, but was second in the championship. And then nineteen seventy-eight. Uh, Sadly, another posthumous uh, championship position because he was killed at Monza behind teammate Mario Andretti. Um, and a lot of people rate Ronnie as the fastest driver of that era. I don't think you can argue that he was the best because I don't think he was the complete package in the way that Jackie Stewart was and then Nicky Lauda was subsequently. But probably as quick as anyone if you just gave them a car. If you had one of those race for your lives, pick a driver type thing and you said, right, you can't set it up, it's whatever it is. Yeah. He probably would be a reasonable choice because he would, you know, he was a hopeless test driver because he'd just do the same that time where you put the front wheels on the back, you put the wing up at the angle, <laughs> took the wing off, he just drove it sideways and got the lap time out of it, whatever, which I think made him infuriated from a development point of view. <laughs> yeah. and that's, that caused a little bit of tension at, at Lotus in 1973, not because they didn't get on, because everyone liked Ronnie. You speak to anyone and they, you know, they, 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 they say he was a great guy, but, you know, if it to Powdy, Emerson Powdy would do the work getting the Lotus 72 all set up. Ronnie would be faffing around in practice, not really getting anywhere, and then just go, oh, God, give, give me whatever Emmo's got, and he'd go out and go, to go quicker. Yeah. So it'd be infuriating if you're <laughs> Emmo, but just gives you an idea of the of the, um, the ability. And in 1973, he was the quickest driver. You know, he had more poles, and you know, he led lots of races, um, and, he, and he lost out partly due to a poor start to the season, partly due to unreliability, and partly he just happened to come up against... Jackie Stewart, who I think put in one of the finest F1 seasons of all time in 1973, and that that kept him away from it. Even though that's not the one of the ones where he finished second. Um, so yeah, uh, one of the greats of the 70s. I think in t- in F1 terms, he, he's ahead of X. Maybe if you were to add other things in because of X's sports car success in Le Mans, maybe you'd swap them round. But I think in F1 terms, I'd, I'd edge Ronnie ahead. Yeah, on this list, are those two drivers the right way around? Have we got the list correct, Damien? So far. I would say uh, certainly um, I would agree with this one. Yep. Okay. Yep. So far, R- Ronnie. Um, there's certain drivers. It's annoying. It's aggravating. It grates that they weren't world champion. Moss is the prime example. Just it's ridiculous that he didn't, he didn't become a world champion. But Ronnie Peterson just doesn't strike me as a world champion material, and I like him for it more. The fact I that, agree with that yeah. you know he was this um, wonderful character that everyone loved, and um, because of the way he went about his racing not just what he achieved and how fast he was. It was just everything about um, the way he carried himself, the way he looked, you know, and the, the, the body language of the cars he drove. You know, it was, it was um, you know, I know Kev loves stats and hard numbers and hard performances, but... No, I think yeah. if you're doing a top 10 coolest F1 drivers, he's got to be yeah. on it, isn't he? I mean, sideways through Woodcut 150 or whatever in like 72. And, 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 and I like the fact that just everyone seems to have liked working with him he wasn't an arrogant what's it he just loved and was very good at driving cars quickly and it didn't really matter what it was what does someone like ronnie peterson mean to your generation hayden it's very much sort of a legend of a of a character and of a person because again you're taking it all from sort of secondhand uh, information or, or videos and and it's interesting you say that he's almost um his aura is a higher or his ratings higher despite not being a f1 world champion and I certainly get that. I think it's, it's difficult because it's always there. Those you'll never know what what would happen. Say if he had become one and, and survived, or, or or carried on for a little longer, would that have changed him? But certainly, as the, the name, the style, the, just the colours alone, you see the sort of the flash of the helmet, and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, this this, this is a bit of a, a bit of a legend. Um, 
and potentially certainly in F1 terms more so than than X. Um, I think yeah, if we were doing this list and you covered all motorsport, X start rates higher because of what he was able to achieve everywhere else. But yeah, just as a legend, Pettersson sort of just is highly ranked. Also, I don't think he'd have changed if he'd if he'd gone to. McLaren, I think he was going to go to, wasn't he, after the Lotus thing? I mean, they had a, a rubbish car, so he wouldn't have done much with that. But I think he, I, my impression is that he basically did yeah. what Ronnie did. He was also in the 70s, he did in 78. He was also a national hero, and he still is in Sweden. Um, my mm. brother-in-law is married to a Swede, and I went to the wedding over there, and we stayed in a family house, and I opened a wardrobe, and there was a massive poster of Ronnie Peterson in a um, <laughs> in a Lotus 76, of all things, on the back of the, uh, the, the door. And his my um the father the father of the bride basically was a massive Ronnie Peterson fan. He was of that generation and it still lingers now. I think he's still in Sweden, you know, he's still the man. Okay, we'll take a quick break and when we come back we'll get into the top four on our list of F one drivers who never won the world championship. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. When you're craving church's three-piece classic, there's no other option. Two crispy legs, a thigh, and a warm honey butter biscuit are the only way. And that's why we call it a classic. Church's Texas Chicken. Tap the banner to find your nearest location. Offer valid at participating locations. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. When you're craving church's three-piece classic, there's no other option. Two crispy legs, a thigh, and a warm honey butter biscuit are the only way. And that's why we call it a classic. Church's Texas Chicken. Tap the banner to find your nearest location. Offer valid at participating locations. Okay, welcome back. Let's get into the top four. And, Kev, here's the driver who you almost switched places at number four. Tell us why he is where he is. So number four is Dan Gurney, 1959-68, and some appearances in 1970 as well. 86 starts, only four wins, which doesn't sound very impressive, but Mm -hmm. bear with me. Three poles, and a best result of fourth in 61 and 65, which also doesn't sound very impressive, Mm -hmm. but I think almost more than... More, more than almost any other driver I can think of, maybe Chris Amon would be a, would be the other. His his stats just do not do any sort of ju- oh his F one stats yeah. do not do any justice. I mean he won in absolutely everything else. Obviously he won Le Mans, he won he won in Trans in Trans Am Can Am. You know, he basically won in everything he did. You know IndyCar. In fact, in 1967 he won a Grand Prix and an IndyCar race. Um, his own cars as well. So he's, I mean, he's got to be one. Of the, he's another one of these cool characters. The reason I put him ahead of Ronnie in the end is I, I looked at the teammates, and I think you could say Ronnie had a bit of trouble with Fittipaldi in '73. He was outpaced at Tyrrell in the six wheeler by Patrick Depay, who no never comes into this sort of discussion, but actually was a pretty mean peddler. And of course, I mean, there's a whole debate about you know 1978, but actually, you know, Mario did the work on that Lotus '78 and '79. 
and actually even on qualifying he's usually ahead you know it's not like Ronnie's cruising behind him all the time or waving him past I think there's a little bit of a little bit of roast tinted spectacles there. Whereas Gurney, I think, has pretty much all his team, apart from the early days when he's you know getting up to speed, he has his teammates nailed, including Jack Brabham at Brabham. Mm. And had he stayed around at the end of 65 when Jack Brabham was thinking of retiring and just going, you know, it's like, right, I've got my number one driver, Dan's quicker than me, got this Brabham Repco coming, we're all sorted. And then, <laughs> then Dan left to go and do his own thing. If he stays and drives the Brabham Repco, he's 966 and 67 world champion, I'm, I'm pretty convinced. Uh, so he's a, he's a double world champion. So, okay, is that his fault for making the wrong decision? Probably, mm. but it's not a driving mistake. It's it's something else. So it's I've, a career choice. It's a career say. choice. And that's, that's the big Alonso thing, right? Is How do you, yeah. how you factor that into how you rate these drivers? So he's also, I had the great pleasure of interviewing um, Dan a couple of times. He's an absolutely lovely man as well. Um, and just really cool, total fever, quick and everything. And tended to blow away his teammates. So, yeah, I... In the end, I thought, oh, I'm going to put him fourth. I think we need to start uh, renaming the Alonso decision-making uh, process, or at least layering in the Ricardo decision-making process, because we give Alonso a hard time for his, de- his courage, rightfully so at times, but also we should uh, share the love around a little bit. Yeah, I mean, actually... Uh, <laughs> blame Daniel's and choices. It was partly... There's, yeah, you're right. There are lots of examples <laughs> of drivers making the wrong decision. But also, sometimes in it's only the wrong decision in hindsight. And it looks much worse. Like we were t- we've talked about in a, a previous podcast about Derek Warwick when he was at Renault in 84. You know, at that point, they had a con- championship contending car. So the year before they had a championship contending car, they had a race winning potential car in 84. There's no reason to think they would fall off the cliff quite that badly. And now we go, oh, well, Williams are amazing. But again, at that point, they'd only had one championship winning car, really, because the 07 and the 08 were very closely related. So it looks a lot less ridiculous as a decision. It's a little bit like Ron Dennis's point about, oh, you know, we need to be with a manufacturer to win in the hybrid era mm. with Honda. Okay, so that didn't go well. But he was right. That's what Red Bull went and did. They just did it properly. So <laughs> no, but, it's but true. there but, were other issues there. But, yeah, you know, it looks yeah. like a terrible decision, but I don't think it necessarily is. We've, how, well, we're on Gurney, aren't we? Are we on, <laughs> yeah, Damien, Dan Gurney, fourth place. Is this the right place for him? Yeah, he's he is one of those lost world champions. But again, he's one of those guys that it doesn't matter that he didn't win a world championship because I, I don't think he ever really regretted the fact that he gave up a, a winning Brabham because he built his own company and he built this own uh, empire that that was you know built beautiful Grand Prix cars and and really really fast Indy cars that he had lots of success in. So um, and sports cars later on, of course. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, absolutely. So he um, yeah, but he was. He was the guy that Jim Clark always looked to in terms of um, the, you know, his his sort of benchmark, that, and if, and that's what um, Clark's I think his father told Gurney at his funeral, which is quite a thing to hear, you know. And I think um, he's got immense respect from everyone who raced with him and against him. I think and that says a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. everything I've read about him, hugely admired by his peers and and, and drivers at the time, and. You probably could apply this statement to a lot on the list, but I guess it's one of those where even if he had won the title, would that have changed how we reflect on his career and on his achievements? There's some I think you probably would, and that might be because of the way their career's ended, perhaps unfortunately in certain accents. But um, yeah, I think Dan going to the Formula 1 world champion or, or not, it, it, it doesn't change well, much let's in my play, mind. Let's play God, right? We're God oh. of the motorsport universe. We can change anything. Would we rather him be a world champion but the Eagle Westlake not exist? 
and you, exactly. pro- you probably want the Eagle to exist. Yeah. Right? So whenever there's yeah. a vote on like the best looking or coolest yeah. F1 cars, the 96.7 Eagle's always in it. You know that that cool, cool kind of nose yeah, and yeah, winning at Spa. Really, yeah. So he's just yeah, just another cool yeah Gurney for president. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right, let's get onto the podium and. Our third place driver is a lesson in why, Kev, you put these lists together with a lot of thought. And it's, you know, it's not a case of, well, look, let's look at the wins, poles and fastest laps and let the data rule. Because there's a story behind each of these drivers and where they are. And in third place, uh, the stats do not back up this driver's talent. That's an intro, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so number three is Robert Kubica, 2006 to 10, 2019 to 2021. I mean, we are talking about the pre-rally accident, I yeah. think. Yep, yeah, yep. the pre, pre-rally accident. Although his story after that has been inspiring in a different way. Mm. Well, to get, to get back in any car, it, let alone yeah, a Formula right. One car. Absolutely. And, and, and still going and, and you know, fantastic. Um, yeah, he's a fantastic inspiration, I think. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking more about his pre-rally accident F1 career. So 99 starts, one win, one pole, one fast lap. Best result of four in 2008 but one of the ways of looking at this list is and I've said this before about when we're assessing the greatest drivers who are the benchmark drivers of their era mm. and you you lay them out and as I said before you know Fangio Moss Clark Stewart Louder Prost Senna Schumacher Hamilton is where we're at Verstappen's probably going to be the next one and then where the, where drivers are in relation to that how close they are and for me Kubica is right in with the Hamilton Alonso mm. ha- uh, and he was that good, that highly rated, to the point where there was talk of him going to Ferrari. And he's the one driver outside of Hamilton. I'd go, ooh, Kubica and Alonso. Uh, I'm not sure. Whereas everyone else, <laughs> like, well, Alonso will just you know, yeah. kick, kick their backside. I don't think that would have been the case. You know, Some of his qualifying efforts uh, for Renault were incredible. And in 2008, I think he was the best driver. You know, he topped the Autosport 50. You know, he didn't really make any significant errors. The reason he didn't win the championship was because BMW went, oh, no, we're close enough. We're going to try and win it next year for the new rules. Oh, we got it wrong. And he was pretty annoyed about that, rightly so, I think. What, what was the, who, who backed him on his way up? Was he a Ferrari driver uh, in his junior categories? Was he associated with anybody? Um, who was funding him? Was he BMW? Was he... I don't know. I can't. I can't remember who funded him on his way up. Um, Damien, where would you have been around that uh, early part of the noughties? Was it here? Was it Motorsport Magazine? Can you remember the the? There wasn't really a hype around, but there wasn't an excitement around him coming into Formula One. Do you remember that time? Yeah, I don't really remember being that aware of him on the way up. You know, he he did good things in um, Renault three point five, didn't he? Um, and he but he arrived, and when he arrived, everyone was saying, "Oh, this, this guy's good." But there was no real sort of um, it was a sort of slow burn, I would mm. I would think. More than you know, Lewis Hamilton, we were, we kind of spotted very early. You know, Eddie had to win those championships, almost like to to tick them off, um, and he he duly did so, and so arrived, you know, with a lot of talk about him, and and, and Kubica didn't in that sense. Um, but when he got there, he he's one of those drivers that absolutely suited Formula One mm. and for driving a Formula One car, and. Um, it was cle- he was clearly you know Hamilton always had massive respect for him Alonso had massive respect for him all his peers again it's this thing about the, the peers re- response to him that that was that was what I was going to say next very key because when we did this list the first time around um, we which got was when 2014 I want to say okay yeah okay that Kubica in third was one of the things we got the most stick for 
So I then commissioned the GP editor of the time <laughs> to go and speak to everyone that had worked with or raced against Kubica and go, right, tell us what, what, how good was this guy and how mega was he? And they always basically came back, yeah, he was, as, he was as good as anyone, best of the best. Oh, there with Lewis and Fernando. So I was like, thanks very much. I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> eight, eight, eight years on, when I sort of saw the list and we were getting ready for this, like, that was the one that I raised my eyebrow the most of until then basically we have these sorts of discussions and go, oh, actually, when you lay all facts and opinions on, on, on the table and you see it, yeah, he's totally, totally justified. I, I still don't know if I put him this high in this, but that's, that, that is a subjective matter of it. Um, but certainly on those, that era of, of when he was sort of so close to fighting for sight on that, yeah, he, he had the skill, he had the speed, probably didn't have, ever had the machinery, at least at the same time. And then when you're looking at when the injury comes in, and yeah, there was there was talk of uh, a pre-contract potentially going to Ferrari before or just at the time of the rallying accident. You think, yeah, again, again, much like everyone on this list, if stars are aligned ever so slightly, you never know. He's much more of a what might have been one on this list, whereas the other guys on this, a lot of guys on this list at least had a chance. They had a chance, yeah, yeah. I don't think you could ever say he had a genuine title fighting chance. No, and I've probably, which I is why probably I probably wouldn't put him quite so high as you. Yeah, I guess if you if I was if I was being entirely consistent with my weighting criteria, right, you'd probably have to drop him down to I don't know maybe the fifth sixth sort of area. Yeah. but I just have this, and you can call this bias if you like. I just have this absolute belief that he was. Yeah, he was that good. I think he was probably better than Seb, and he's a four-time world champion. And, so, and because know. of the way he used to go racing, he he didn't seek out the cameras, and he didn't want to have the highest profile in the paddock. He was never um, the kind of the Kimmy character. You know, Kimmy's actually quite chatty, um, <laughs> but he you know, purposefully has his on-screen persona um, that became a joke towards the end of his career. But um, because he never... Uh, was at the front of the queue to be on on you know in the interviews and things like that. I think when he had those amazing performances, he took people by surprise. Or an average Formula One fan would be like, "Oh my goodness, like this guy is amazing." Perhaps people would be surprised to have him in third place. Maybe he should be lower down. I don't know. I just he's quite, he's quite so an understated character. That's fair. I mean, I I don't really. And this is perhaps where I'm a bit weird. I don't really care about all that stuff. I don't care whether you're. A, Super. I mean, obviously, from a fan's point of view, do you do? But for the assessment of a driver, I don't care whether you're out, you know, boozing up every night, or you're in the in a library looking up, you know, stats from the year before, or whatever. You wouldn't do that in the library. You do it on laptops. <laughs> there, but you know, I know what you mean. I, it's what you deliver on the track, which is why the whole the Kimmy thing. Mm. If he'd been, you know, continuing to blow all his teammates away and winning world championships, he can just say what he likes. But it starts to not look so good if you're doing that, and then three tenths of Felipe Massa in qualifying you know that that's kind of what I mean and, but, and I think that Kubik was the other way around like he would just not he would he did all his talking on the track really yeah, yeah big time, big time. and then what did what did we find out about when you commissioned to like okay did we did we get this wrong putting him in third place what are some of the things that came back right. in terms of like how he uh you know in, in testing or in in race debriefs what right. what are some of the things that just came out that the average Formula One fan wouldn't know yeah all the usual cliches really driven relentless knew what you wanted you know, I think there was a story of them trying to bring him in for wets at Monaco and he went, I've never seen rain fall from a blue sky. I'm staying out. <laughs> the sort of calls that you yeah. need to have, and I know that that's become less and less of a thing over time because yeah, there's so much data on the pit mm, wall. Mm. But actually, as we've seen in 2022, with both Red Bull and Ferrari in the opposite directions, a bit of getting on the radio and going, no, these tyres aren't for today, chaps. Okay, fine, we're doing that. Yeah. 
uh, and listening to the to the driver that's actually going around the track and feeling it in real time. And Kubik had the confidence. Well, first of all, he had the ability to identify it, and secondly, he had the confidence to go, "No, this is the right call." Yeah, you know, he was a leader, and I think it would have been only surely a matter of time before he would have been in a championship fight. Obviously, that I'm going out on a bit of a limb there, so I take it take the point, but. That I'm, I'm kind of making a point with third. Make of that yeah. what you will. No, I, and I and because he had his accident in a different series as well. You know that I think that earns him points as a as a driver, as a racing driver who isn't. You know, and they even at that era of Formula One, they weren't keen on drivers doing skydiving and doing. You know, it was it was the modern era is something that was very much locked down. You're a Formula One driver, and yet he wanted to go do these other things and just love driving a car yeah so that's, and that earns him points with me as well yeah I was just thinking about Kevin Magnussen last week did the made his GT3 debut didn't he in the, in the, in the Gulf 12 hours that's really great to see isn't it, it is. in the off season he goes yeah. and does something like that it with his dad it's kind of more of that <laughs> yeah. recently the last few years it's kind of actually come back a bit again yeah, yeah the yeah. longs they're doing his stuff as well speaking to, to Kevin like he, he loves it it's sort of funny how life and the world has gone but when he did end up losing his F1 drive and going elsewhere he looked. <laughs> thanks for saying this, Neil Haas, but he looked so much happier. Yeah. Like he was just generally enjoying life. Yeah. And maybe that is all sort of the perspective when he came back. Did reflect on that and said, "I've had time away, family, seeing the world from a different light, and all that." And and but he's still now sort of finding that balance of of doing those, yeah, golf uh, twelve hours and generally other sports car outings that he wants to do. There's that nice story, obviously him him teaming up with his dad, so itself itself really. But yeah, I guess going back to Kvitter, that was. There was a time where maybe his accident put every every sort of sense of that on hold because all the teams thought well, we don't we can't have that happening to our drivers. We pay them a lot of money to drive for us, not to injure themselves and other stuff. But yeah, maybe time has, has sort of helped it and safety has improved, of course. Yeah. So that has come t- towards it. But yeah, I guess Kovitz, I, I do sort of see your point in the the top. I I still feel he's high, but it's it's more of the what if factor that that is very subjective and that's the whole point of this list really what could have happened if you put him in a title winning or title fighting car now sometimes we do two and one together how do you want to play today no let's do them individually okay who's in second place so second is Gilles Villeneuve 97 to 82 67 starts six wins two poles uh, best result second in 1979 now, I previously listed the benchmark drivers of their era. You could make an argument, and Gilles Villeneuve fans would, that between Lauda's retirement, first retirement, yeah, when he just got bored of driving around in circles at Brabham, uh, and Villeneuve's crash, fatal crash at the Belgian Grand Prix, that, that he was the benchmark driver. Certainly a lot of his peers regarded him as the fastest. Was he the best? I mean, there's the debate about was he too too wild, Hmm. Uh, I think that probably maybe he was to start with I still maintain that the Zandvoort race in 1979 is is a misjudgment that he gets that far into the race without tyre change which a Prost or a Senna or a you know, Schumacher later on they wouldn't do on the other hand I think some of his races later on particularly in the truck of the 126CK for in 81 holding off a pack of cars throughout the race at, at uh, in Spain 81 I think shows that he, he wasn't just a he wasn't just a hang it out merchant I think he had more to his game than that um, but yeah, I think a lot of his peers thought he was the fastest driver around. In at the strike in '82, Villeneuve and Alain Prost shared a bed, and one of the drivers present did suggest that if they had a, a love child, that would that everyone else could retire because that'd be about the best <laughs> racing driver of all time. So uh, you know, I think yeah. he was very highly regarded, and he you know he was he's one of the two drivers on this list who I think could be regarded as a benchmark of their era, albeit briefly. Again, you look at the peers and what they thought of him, and, yeah. and Prost loved. 
Villeneuve. It wasn't just his friend. He, you know, he he, he recognised how good he was. Um, and you know, there are two sides to it, as you say, the the wild side. And some of his fellow drivers didn't rate him because of that and said that he was he was downright dangerous and that he was a risk to himself and that ultimately he paid the price for that. Um, and there is a there is a case to be made, but I, I don't know. I, I, there was so much more to him than that. I think the, the evidence is there that he he understood how to look after a set of tyres, um, and he could race tactically. He he did have a strategic head on his shoulders as well as that wheel to wheel genius that you know we saw with Arnu and at, you know Dijon seventy nine. There's this. It's it's it is a what might have been because there's so much we we didn't get to see from him and he spent too long in bad Ferraris in a in a short short career. Uh, yeah, I mean just to back that up in 1980. So I, I think that there's the thing of oh he let Schecter win the 1979 World Title. That That's not true. That doesn't stand up. But I think in 1980 Schecter checks out. This is I've won my World Championship. The car's a bit hopeless. He still does a professional job, but Villeneuve's hungry and he and he gets some results out of that car that I don't think many people would. And you know, I did a I did a list for later on in this series of the worst cars to win a Grand Prix. One of those cars won two, and it was the eighty one Ferrari, which had a quarter of the downforce of the, the best of the uh, British cars, a quarter to a third, but obviously lots of power. Um, and I maintain that his nineteen eighty one Monaco qualifying lap is probably the greatest qualifying lap in F one history. It's two and a half seconds quicker than teammate Didier Peroni who was on pole the year before. And as I said, the year before, people thought he might be the fastest driver in F1. So, uh, and, and he was lucky to win the following day, but he kind of earned that luck with that car, I think. Uh, and then also he, had the, you know, he, won, he won his two races in two of the three slowest tracks on the calendar. Um, so, yeah, I think, as, as Damien said, what, the peers, what his peers thought of him uh, and what people have... You know, he's a little bit like a Senna without the ruthlessness in terms of, I think he was very fair wheel-to-wheel. I don't, there's, a, there's a moment in the Arnu fight where they are reliant on late 70s, early 80s rear tyres bouncing off each other, which you wouldn't <laughs> maybe get away with in other eras. But generally, he was very fair and very honourable in the way that he went about his business. He just wanted to go out there and... Actually, in that sense, more of a Lewis Hamilton-type mentality, but with a slightly... Perhaps during a period where you could be a bit more flamboyant and show your driving style on track yeah I, I want to argue with this but I generally yeah can't everything you've, you've all said there has pretty much nailed it in terms of just have to look at his mark on Ferrari and then what would follow still it was always his name that was sort of held up as this is the the guy that you want to, to, to not only become but emulate as well and yeah again the what if factor that you mentioned earlier it's it's, it's a what if what could have happened with a slightly better car and, and again better luck so well if he this is the sliding doors moment if he goes yeah. to McLaren so he's there I mean is he there instead of Prost or instead of Lauder I guess he'd be there instead of Prost wouldn't he because Prost was still at Renault so mm. is he a multiple world champion with McLaren in the mid to late 80s quite possibly and on the thing about the Woolies was he always going to have an accident he'd been outspoken uh, and, and Nigel Roebuck obviously a friend of his and the Allsport reporter at the time very open about the qualifying regulations being ridiculous with these sticky tyres and that you were out there uh, with the power turned up and you got one lap at it. Uh, so you, you couldn't afford to back off. You had to keep your foot in and mm. obviously you had the misunderstanding with Jochen Mass. I don't think he did anything particularly outrageous. It was a, 
a split second judgment call from the two of them and unfortunately they both went the same way so I, I don't think that I don't think that's a misjudgment in the way that the, the Stefan Beloff Spar accident was uh, in, the, in the thousand Ks um, some people may disagree but I, I don't feel like Villeneuve at that point in his career was an accident waiting to happen all the time Okay, right. On to our number one driver, never to win a Formula One World Championship. Andrea Detestris. No, it's not. <laughs> uh, so this is this. I, is might, I might make that gap longer in the edit just to really <laughs> to make people wonder. People, yeah. They're like, who haven't I thought of? Um, well, some of our number ones are obvious, and some aren't. Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a pretty. I know there's not much suspense is there, but it, it is number one. Sterling Moss, fifty-one to sixty-one. 66 starts, although some of that in F2 machinery, and he won 16 races, so he had an incredible strike rate despite having been in the wrong car for the first part of his career. 16 poles, 19 fastest laps, uh, and he was second in the championship in 1955, 56, 57 and 58, and he threw a couple of third places in as well. Uh, so this is this is the uh, Moss is the example of why the world championship shouldn't be regarded as the be all and end all of of how you rate drivers. He was the benchmark driver after Fangio retired, and right up until his, his crash at, at Goodwood in 1962, I think that he knew he'd already identified Clark as being the guy because Moss had worked out that you needed to rotate the car more under like they all do that now, but with the mid-engine cars instead of drifting, it was rotating the car under braking to make the corner shallower. And he saw that Clark was doing the same thing. Stewart picked it up almost immediately, got to F1. It's the top drivers get it yep. as always. So Moss knew that he would have his hands full with with Clark from sort of '62 onwards. So that was the, one of the great motor racing fights that we never really saw. They'd had a few sort of scuffles up to that point, um, but he won in uncompetitive machinery. He was incredible in the wet. Uh, everyone knew that he was the bench. He was Mr. Motor Racing, um, and he lost the you know he lost the '58 World Championship despite winning four wins to Mike Hawthorne's one ridiculous scoring system, mm. and having stuck up for Mike at the Portuguese Grand Prix. I, you know, it just goes on and on and on. <laughs> it's just so incredibly obvious. This is one where I didn't need to switch on the brain really. Yeah, what is it about the the the, the man and the legend that puts him so far ahead? Oh, he's got that aura. I met him lots of times, and every time I did, I thought, oh, I'm going to remember this. I've got to remember this, because, you know, he won't be with us forever. And it, it was just, um, I think it was just the, the range of stuff he drove, because it wasn't just Formula One, it was everything that he drove, uh, and the commitment he gave to it, the professionalism he gave to it, the fact that he did it to get paid, he wasn't doing it just for fun. Uh, I, I love that sort of hard edge about him. Um, and um, one of the most fun things I ever did with him is um, he guest edited an, an issue of the magazine I was editor of at the time and we got him in the office and I basically did a feature where I just threw names at him and said tell me what you think what's the first thing you think of when you think of these and he went through them and that's when he sort of said about Tony Brooks for example saying you know ah, you know, he was special he was uh, after Fanjo he was the other one you know and, and it, um, he had he had respect for the big names and then people like Hawthorne, he was polite about them and they were his friends because they were all good friends in those days but he knew he knew his place in the world he knew his place he knew that he was better than uh, pretty much everyone else around him um, which is why it is such a shame that we lost Clark versus Moss because as you say Kevy he, he, he spotted early that this, this was the next one mm. and we didn't get it yeah um, everyone on this list has had one key factor whether it be a untimely injuries or deaths not the right machinery bad luck scoring system you probably apply one of those to each of the years that was a near miss <laughs> to Moss and then add his aura which we've talked about with, with Villeneuve in particular just, just recently and that's why he tops the list by a, by a country mile in this uh, sort of unusual top 10 of lists Was he hard on machinery? 
I, I don't think that he was. I don't think you win 4,000 Nürburgring kilometres if you're hard on machinery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Monaco Grand Prix. Yeah, he, he did win 45% of all the races he started. Uh, mm-hmm. He was pretty good in rallying. Uh, I don't think he was particularly hard. Okay, the Colotti gearbox on the Cooper, I think he was perhaps driving it in a way that they didn't realise actually put strain on it, but it wasn't a good gearbox anyway, and he couldn't get hold of a Cooper one. So I don't think that's really on, on Moss. I, I went through his, obviously went through his career, and I could find one definite time that he cost himself when he over the engine on the first lap of the Belgian Grand Prix in 58, and he, he blew the engine up. There's the what caused the Monaco crash when he triggered the multi. Uh, he absolutely maintained there was a brake issue. They're the only two occasions that I would say he he causes the retirement. The rest of the time he's he's just faster than everyone else. So when he retires, he retires from the lead. Mm. Um, and I think that you know, I would go as far as to suggest that the gap that Moss had over his rivals is bigger than at any other point in F1 history, with the possible exception of Schumacher in the between Senna and Hakkinen. I think he's that, you know, so far ahead, after 58 goes, the World Championship, I just can't take us seriously anymore. I'm going to go and have some fun at a privateer team and still is in the championship fight. Uh, and then in 61, he's outpowered, outgunned by the Ferraris and takes, a, you know, Monaco and Nürburgring wins. I think everyone knew that he was the best, even though he didn't win the World Championship. I'd agree with that. Um, yeah, but it's also Clark in 65 in terms of so far ahead of the opposition. And uh, As a driver? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I'm not sure. I think that's maybe a bit harsh on the Gurney Surtees uh, hill. But 65 is funny enough. I did, I did a piece after <laughs> after Verstappen's record-breaking season. I did a, you know, what? how does it compare to other great seasons? And I do think 65 is ridiculous because, you know, uh, Clark wins six races, leads the other, leads the other three starts has mechanical failure and the other one he doesn't win is because he's busy winning some roundy roundy race in America with the Indy 500 uh, so really absolutely incredible season one of the great seasons and his F2 champion oh, yeah yeah, yeah. Um, although that is also the year he, that uh, to come back to our list Dan Gurney forces him into a, a rare mistake at Brands Hatch the race of champions and he crashes under pressure from Gurney um, but uh, yeah that's obviously a fantastic fantastic campaign but as an era I think that the, the Moss gap is big and that isn't a disrespectful to Jack Brabham obviously an absolute legend of the sport but I do think I do think everyone knew that Moss was Moss was the guy really Well that's our podcast for today gentlemen thank you for joining us dear listener uh, a week to wait until our next top 10 list next weekend but I think it's one that you will uh, you'll enjoy like all of these lists thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you on the next one Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When you're craving church's three-piece classic, there's no other option. Two crispy legs, a thigh, and a warm honey butter biscuit are the only way. And that's why we call it a classic. Church's Texas Chicken. Tap the banner to find your nearest location. Offer valid at participating locations. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Bread Isle, are you ready to rock? Dave's Killer Bread is the country's number one organic bread for a reason. Always delivering killer taste, killer texture, and killer nutrition. This isn't bread. This is bread amplified. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.